0: Welcome to the Dig In Travel Podcast, where travel and other digital professionals level up their marketing skills by listening to the top industry experts. And now here's your host, Istok Franco, founder of digintravel.com, your number one resource for travel, digital, e-commerce, and marketing.
1: Hi, this is Istok, and you're listening to episode 17 of the Dig In Travel Podcast. When I was working on a model and a concept of our airline, Digital Academy, I had one big challenge. I was missing one key piece. You see, I am very passionate about digital optimization, experimentation, testing, so we had that part covered. Then, for data and analytics, my partner, Boštjan, he's one of the best guys, and I knew he will do a great work of explaining analytics uh, concepts, and he's one of the most knowledgeable and passionate people about data and analytics that I know. Then, for the digital innovation part, I worked with Mike Sloan from PROS for a long time, and he's one of the airline travel industry veterans and did a lot of things around digital product development, innovation, building new, different airline booking flows, e-commerce solution, so that part was covered as well. But the part that I was missing was somebody who is really passionate and great at doing user and UX research. So as I was trying to figure out who can help us in this area, I ran across the work of Amanda Stockwell. She's one of the most popular and the best instructors for UX and user research on LinkedIn Learning, and I was really impressed not only by her knowledge, but even more by the passion that she has for the area of user and UX research. The reason why I wanted somebody great in our Airline Digital Academy team is because I think user and UX research will really be the most important area for building great airline user experience, digital user experience and digital optimization. COVID-19 changed your user behavior so much, changed the context so much that if you don't understand the new behavior, the new context, it is really difficult to do smart and better digital user experience for your customers. So today's podcast interview is really about how to do agile user research in these current pandemic times. Amanda provided great tips about what kind of user research method you should choose, how to do remote user research, which is very relevant currently, and how to embed user research in your agile digital and e-commerce teams. If you want to work with great digital experts like Amanda, Bustian, Mike and myself, and you work to work on real airline digital frameworks and real use cases, then please check out our Airline Digital Academy on diggingtrail.com/academy. Now, please enjoy the podcast and the talk with Amanda. Hi, Amanda, and welcome to the Digging Trail podcast.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: I'm very excited not to have you only on the podcast, but also to have you uh, as an instructor on board of our new Airline Digital Retailing Academy. So yeah, really excited to chat to you about user research and everything UX related today.
0: Yeah, it's my day in, day out. So I'm excited too. It'll be fun to get to collaborate.
1: You'll cover the topic of let's say user and uh, UX research in our academy, um, but... Through our research with airlines and our trail companies, what I see is that a lot of companies still treat user research as something that's not really necessary to do on an ongoing basis. So I still see a lot of this new growth hacking mindset where we think, I don't know, analytics, looking at data and analytics and doing occasional A-B tests is enough. Why do you think user research is important, or?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I want to say I'm not against data at all. I love data. And I think looking at <laughs> analytics are great. <laughs> I just think that it doesn't tell you a complete story. So um, one of the great things about user research is that you get to learn about people's shifting context and you get to uncover opportunities to serve them better. And you get to understand kind of the why behind some of their actions. So there's a a pretty common saying that... Um, you know, like analytics and quant data tells you what is happening. But if you don't mm-hmm. know why, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, and so for me, kind of the thing that I always, um, you know, kind of focus on helping people understand is that user research helps you uncover opportunities that you didn't even know, uh, you know, that you you maybe weren't even looking for. So, um, and the way I kind of break it down is within UX research, there's kind of two buckets. There's maybe it's the more traditional or what a lot of people think of, like usability testing, which is evaluative, um, which is to make sure that something is done well. Um, And that is great and very important. But the bigger kind of value from a business strategy perspective is to do user research that's, um, you know, generative and qualitative and exploratory to better understand the shifting context. And given that we are speaking in August of 2020. Um, I think that it it goes without saying that things change rapidly. Um, anybody who was asked six months ago what they would be doing right now um, probably is not on the exact same track that they thought that they were going to be. And with the you know kind of shifts in the world and technology and um, you know global pandemics and all of that stuff, really doing ongoing user research to understand your users and their shifting contexts and needs can help you adapt um, and really kind of find new opportunities to serve and provide value, which ultimately um, is going to build brand loyalty and it's going to um, increase business success overall.
1: Yeah, you mentioned one very interesting point. So when you say, okay, we have quantitative uh, quantitative and qualitative methods and what I see, maybe my background is more e-commerce, so uh, not UX uh, and research. So Let's say I learned by myself most about uh, user research and UX research, and maybe the know-how is not so structured. So what I see also with my peers is that oftentimes we think that these qualitative methods that uh, that became more accessible with uh, a lot of new tools, like these web tools to do session recordings, to do analytics, to do heat maps, to do service, that these are enough. And uh, what you said is that they usually are good for validating, but not really go into exploring new ideas or uh, going deeper into our users' minds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I want to say I love all of those tools and I really am glad that um, so many different kinds of organizations seem to be embracing um, collecting that kind of research So, uh, you know, again, I'll say it's not that any of those things are bad. It's just that alone, they don't paint a full picture. You know, even if you're able to record people live on your site or, you know, even, you know, do some surveys where you get some qualitative information, if you don't have the ability to dig in and understand people's context, you're never going to kind of be able to understand the opportunities to serve them, so one of the things that I always say is that a single person's, uh, you know, feedback can uncover an opportunity or can uncover a need that you didn't know was available. So it's again, it's not that those things aren't useful; it's just that they won't give you the full story. They won't they won't lead you to any new opportunities. You might be able to refine your current offering or your current product and make that as good as possible, but. Uh, it won't lead you to insights about where else you should go or how else you could serve.
1: How would you then select the appropriate user research method for, let's say, a certain project or a certain task at hand?
0: Sure. So one of my favorite phrases is, it depends. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And the the good and bad thing about uh, UX and user experience is that everything depends on the context of what you're trying to do, what you already know, who you're trying to serve, and importantly, uh, what are the business goals? So sometimes people, especially who are newer to user experience, don't recognize sort of the value of building in, um, you know, kind of focus on business goals as well. So I think there's a lot of different ways to break down types of research. Uh, I would say that the very first thing to kind of look at is what is your context? What are you trying to learn? And try to narrow down um, some specific goals. So, for instance, if you are exploring building a brand new product, you're going to want to do something really differently than if you are iterating on a, you know, an app that's been out for a really long time, and you're just making small changes to it. So, the first thing is to kind of think about the the context of what you're working on and what are you trying to learn, um, and then you can from there you can kind of further refine. You know, if you're trying to evaluate an app, for instance, you might want to do a usability test. If you're trying to understand how uh, the language that people use or how people think, you might want to do something like a card sort. Um, If you, you know, really just kind of want to learn more about your users and their context, you might consider something like some one-on-one interviews or some ethnography. Uh, Ethnography, for those who don't know, is basically putting yourself in context with your users. That is Uh, slightly more challenging right now is there's uh, still a lot of travel restrictions, but there's tons of new tools to do sort of mobile ethnography, to have people record things on their cell phone or, um, you know, take pictures on their mobile and and upload them, that kind of thing. So there's, we could spend the whole hour talking about how to, how to figure out um, the right method. But basically I would say first, look at the context of your project. Like where, are you building something new? Are you assessing something that's live? Are you assessing a a new idea or a new version of something, or are you trying to learn more about your users and kind of the overall context? So, take that breakdown first, then look at the specific goals, the specific things you're trying to learn, um, and then make a, a call about uh, what's important in terms of that specific goal. So, for instance, if you are um, you know working in e-commerce and you want to make sure that people are able to find things, you'll probably want kind of a balance of qualitative feedback and some quantitative numbers. So you might do sort of a combination of methods. You might do moderated usability testing and some uh, you know, quantitative card sorts or something like that. So I, I actually have written extensively about this. Um, there's a whole lot of different ways to, to break it down. But um, I would say as kind of a caution that um, just like anything else, the different tools and methods in UX research are all useful and valuable, but only if applied in the right way. And sometimes I see people who are like, awesome, usability tests, let's do that for everything. And while I love usability tests and they're wonderful, um, they're not a good tool for absolutely everything. So,
1: okay. Let me challenge you a bit further. So sure, I, lo- I, lo- I love how you broke it down and I love the, let's say the theory, but like you said, it depends. And now this depends is really depends with the current situation, especially for us in travel and in the airline industry. So one of the points you made is that, okay, for developed products like apps, if you do minor changes, there are specific methods that are applicable. But what we're facing now is that we have developed products like apps and websites, but what really changed is user behavior. And there are many more fierce friction points, questions that users have. So how would you go about this uh, current tricky situation
0: especially when we're in a time like this with a lot of uh, change and fluctuation and really rapidly changing outlooks and needs i would say the number one thing that you can do is and it sounds so simple but talk to people uh, whether they're your current users or they used to be your users or you want them to be your users there there's something so powerful about a one-on-one moderated interview you can throw in other things you can try to you know you can also get some usability feedback but in this time where needs and context are shifting so rapidly you don't need to know how easy or not it is to click a button or to get through a specific process. You need to understand how people are conceiving and how they're feeling. And you need to be able to come up with ideas to address you know, kind of their their biggest challenges and what's preventing them from interacting with you. So for instance, right now, at least I live in America and travel is available. Air flight, you know, airlines are open, um, but there are far fewer flights, there are fewer people on the flights. And um, and so one thing that I always recommend to people do if they have something that's kind of live or ongoing. Talk to people in um, in kind of the extremes of interacting with you. So if you have, you know, somebody who has not slowed down their travel at all, talk to them and understand why, what motivate them, what makes them feel safe or what doesn't, you know, what is their context that means that they are someone who is super interactive with you or, you know, is still traveling a lot or whatever the context is. And on the flip side, talk to the people on the other end of the spectrum, the people who you know, used to fly really frequently or used to travel really frequently and no longer are, as well as kind of a, a mixture in the middle. Um, one thing we haven't really talked about yet is defining personas. Um, there's a lot of different ways that personas get used. It's not always great, <laughs> um, but <laughs> Basically, a persona is a way to uh, kind of describe a type of your user based on their behavior and how you might want to interact with them. So even if you don't have really well-researched, uh, well-documented personas, you probably have a guess about different ways that people interact with you and your organization. And it's not always the, you know, there's there's kind of the marketing personas who you sell to, but there's also the user personas of how they actually behave. Um, And so what I really recommend to kind of wrap back to your question, one-on-one interviews, digging into people's context, finding out, you know, kind of what are they most afraid of, what's holding them back Um, for the ones who are interacting a lot, what makes them feel comfortable, what can you do, you know, what are you doing already that's successful that you can build on and where are they having issues or trouble, where do you need to kind of shift? Um, Although we are in a pandemic and this is a, a special circumstance where it's, Context is changing more quickly than usual. I like to tell people if they don't do anything else that one-on-one interviews are, are usually very, very insightful regardless of the situation.
1: What I see, especially with let's say with user interviews and more in-depth, in-person, moderated user research that a lot of people say, oh, they are great, but then they do it, I don't know, once a year. So now, because of this changing behavior, would you recommend to do less and uh, increase the frequency? So, do I don't know, maybe less, but more frequent because the situation and the behavior uh, is changing. Uh, would you recommend that or uh, how would you go about that? So,
0: I would say that um, you should do as much interviewing as you have budget and time for. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, especially right now when things are changing, you know. What I would have maybe said to somebody three months ago about my opinions on travel are are no longer the same as they are currently. So if you only do stuff like this once a year, you're going to miss out on a lot of subtle changes and shifting context for people. So even if you only talk to 10 people a month or 5 people a month or 3 people a month, that's better than waiting for another year to do one big effort. I'm a really big proponent of gathering information consistently, but in a sustainable way. So rather than having one giant effort at the beginning or end of a project, collecting feedback in an iterative way uh, will help you, you know, sort of get a really be- much better, clearer picture of how things are shifting how things are changing. And, you know, of course, you're not going to talk to the exact same people. Somebody you talked to last month might might be different than somebody you talked to next month. But if you're constantly gathering information, um, it will help you paint sort of the broader context of how things are changing. Um, and And that's true regardless of whether you're doing sort of exploratory research, like with interviews, or if you're doing, you know, more evaluative stuff like usability tests. I actually, I like to recommend that people do a little bit all the time, rather than save up for uh, big, giant efforts. Because even with something, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, with, even as some simple as something like, let's say you have a mobile app for booking flights. If there's, you know, an update to an OS that changes the way something gets rendered, and it happens in, you know, kind of small pieces over a few months, it's good to get that little iterative feedback, rather than to wait six months later, and then find out that for five months, people have been struggling to use something or that it, it's no longer working the way they expected it to or something. So
1: no, no, I agree. And I like the,
0: all the time. <laughs>
1: uh, I agree. And I like the concept of doing less, but more often. I think it's similar that uh, Steven Crook explains in his book about moderated user testing, that at least do three moderated tests a month. And it's enough if you do it frequently enough. Uh, and regularly. Okay, but coming back, you said, okay, now what you would uh, recommend airlines is, okay, go and do user interviews, talk to users, talk to uh, extremes and like that concept. And then when you find out, I don't know, the major fears, then the next step probably is for their airlines to implement and address these questions and uh, fears and friction points in their UX on their website. So once they do that, then you would do Moderated testing or unmoderated testing to see to see how this works or what would be your next step?
0: Yeah, so that's a that's a really great point. So one of the most important things about conducting uh, research, you know, what whatever category it gets bucketed under, sometimes it's called, you know, user research. Sometimes it's called customer research. Sometimes it gets bucketed under the technology side of things. Sometimes it's bucketed in the marketing side of things, but it's most powerful if you can kind of combine your insights across an organization and make sure that you use that information to fuel everything. So for instance, sometimes um, the user research that I do doesn't just influence the interface of an app or a website. It might inter you know, it might influence the the messaging or the branding on the website or, you know, some of the commercials that get put together or the way that customer service is answering questions. So the one thing, the first thing I'd say is to try to make sure that the information you collect isn't siloed and only focused on um, the interface. Because if you're, for instance, doing, you know, three one-on-one interviews a month and you're learning what people are, you know, most afraid of, you can you can change a lot of things, not just the way, you know, the flight finder works or the oh, way the app is presented. Oh. So first I would say to to try to do your best to collaborate with other groups within the organization so that there's sort of a culture of understanding people all the way around. Um, so that is kind of the the first step, I'd say. But then it, when it comes in particular to, so let's say that you did, you know, want to change some of the messaging on the homepage or you did want to change something that you offered with an app or something. I also say that if you only have time for uh, kind of one thing, moderated usability tests for evaluation are really superb because you can mix in a little card sorting, you can mix in a little interviewing, um, but it gives you the opportunity to not only assess what you've built, but kind of do a little bit of follow-up interviewing too and understand, okay, that in fact did work better for you. Why? What was better about it? What else can we build upon? Um, So that you're kind of getting that, both that evaluation and starting to lead to some next insights so that you don't have to completely separate the efforts, Um, especially if you're running on, you know, kind of limited budget or limited resources. I'm a big proponent of being pragmatic in that way and sort of combining efforts when possible.
1: One thing that you mentioned that I liked is the insights that you gather from all these, uh, let's say, user research activities. Do not use them alone or only for the main purpose that analysis was designed for or planned for but share it across, is when I did a similar interview for this podcast a while ago with uh, CRO expert, uh, Anna Potania from Google, she was talking about similar concept of data fetishism. So that the higher we go in the hierarchy of the organization, more we deal only with data and less we have this uh, qualitative, uh, let's say, user stories, user, uh, user research data. How do you look at that and how do you maybe recommend that I don't know, user user researchers then create these user stories and share it, maybe even with upper level of executives.
0: So one of the things that gets talked about in user experience a lot is that uh, user researchers need to be able to tell stories. Uh, We need to be able to put the, the data that we found um, in context, so that also means that we need to just like we tailor the interface of you know a particular app to a particular kind of user, we need to tailor our messaging to the other groups in the organization. So, for instance, um, when I'm talking to colleagues who are in finance or you know higher high level kind of like C level executives. I tie findings about who we're looking for into the business side of things and how what I'm proposing will impact the bottom line. you know, how I predict the, what the return on investment will be or something like that. Whereas if I'm talking to my marketing colleagues, I very much, you know, we'll talk about like the branding and the messaging, and this is how we can present things. and these are the mediums in which people are paying attention right now. So it's it's about sort of tailoring the messaging. Um, and talking to people in their language rather than trying to get them to interpret um, the language of UX. Um, instead, talk talk to them in their language so that they don't have to translate it. Do that translation for them. Um, one of the things that I find really helps with building a, a culture that is really user-driven is making sure that research doesn't happen Um, on an island. So I, as much as possible, when I work with a new client, I try to get their engineers and their marketers and their product people and their, their, you know, business side to, um, you know, if I can, I get them to be a part of the research. I have them take notes or I have them analyze the data with me or I have them, if you, and that's not always possible, um, especially if you're talking about, you know, like a, like the C-suite. That's not going to happen usually. Um, but you can frame frame the information in a way that makes sense to them. And also one of the ways that I get people kind of involved with research is to say, for instance, to an engineer, I say, hey, you know way more about the data is structured than I do. You're going to, you know, you're going to get something different out of this than I will. So I would really love to have you there so I can have your insight. I kind of frame it like I need your help to get the most out of this.
1: So like involving them in um, okay, like they, they are co-participating in the in the whole research project.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that is that's really ideal. But then the other side of that is knowing that you're not always going to be able to get everybody to come to things, especially at a large organization, um, then taking kind of what you found and building a story around it that is relevant to who you're going to be presenting to. So again, sort of that, like, if I've found something that I think will impact how we might want to market, I put that in that language and kind of tell that story to my marketing colleagues. Like, this is how we could market better to them because here's what I learned about them. And if it's, you know, talking to my engineering colleagues, I say, well, like, these are some changes that I propose we make that have to do with, you know, how the data is structured or how quickly the uploads or whatever it is. Um, And this is how it applies to you. And this is why it's important to us overall. Um, And so kind of, and you don't know, the the thing is you don't always know, at least I don't always know, like I'm not a financial expert. I'm not an engineer. um, So I don't always know exactly what it is, but I can do as much translation as I can to say, here's why this is important to the user. Here's why this is important to our company. And here's why it's important to you and your team and how you do your work.
1: So it's not only about understanding your external users, let's, let's say customers, but also your internal users, right?
0: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: Going back to you said that one thing that you would do now is uh, talk to people, do user interviews. But let's say, especially in some parts of the world where the pandemic is, uh, let's say, situation is more difficult, this is maybe not possible to do. And one of the things that I saw you talk about recently is how to do remote user re- research, especially mm-hmm. relevant now. Maybe some major guidelines or uh, key key insights here: how to go about it, and what are the benefits, and what people need to be careful when they're doing remote user research activities.
0: I have been doing remote research for a long time. Um, so I before the pandemic, <laughs> yeah, way before the pandemic. <laughs> Although, uh, certainly doing. More of it now. I think I haven't talked to a user in person in about six months. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and I probably won't for at least another few months. We'll see what happens. But, um, but so, yeah, so remote user research is. Really powerful, and it can be great for a lot of things, especially for places like airlines who are likely to have a user base that's really spread out geographically. It can be really powerful to be able to talk to people not in person. It can be a little bit, you know, just easier to schedule because you don't need people to meet you at an office or go to a, you know, a moderation lab, you can, I use a tool like Zoom, but there are lots of other ones where it's a video conference tool. And basically I can share a screen with people if I want to show them anything, I can see their face, which is important. And they can see mine um, because it helps it feel a little less clinical. It's easier to build rapport. um, And because after the fact, when, so I also always record the sessions, can go back and, um, rewatch certain parts of it and see what their face was doing and read their body language as best you can. You don't always have um, great views, but if somebody's grimacing really hard or looks really frustrated, it's it's pretty easy to tell. People, um, humans in general aren't great at hiding their emotions no matter what they think. <laughs> um, and so I would say that I absolutely suggest um, some sort of video conferencing tool to do either like one-on-one interviews, or um, you can do moderated usability tests if you can share a screen or have them share yours. Um, I really recommend recording. Uh, One thing to be extra careful about, though, is that you don't get the full context necessarily. You can't see their whole body. You might not, you know, sometimes there are just some technical glitches, like if you're working on a prototype and they have to pull it up on their computer that's you know a little bit slower or configured differently than yours. You have a little bit less control, especially if you're running something where you have to share a screen but it really allows you to get in touch with people in um in lots of different places and people who maybe normally wouldn't participate in in research you know right now is an especially interesting time because there's a lot of people who are perhaps furloughed or not as busy with work as they might usually be. Um, And so I've actually had quite good luck the last few months, um, like interacting with people online. But um, the other things to be careful of is that depending on how you've recruited people, if you don't have exactly the right people in your sessions, um, that can skew your results a little bit. That's actually true regardless of whether it's remote or not. Um, But with a lot of, remote recruiting, it can be a little bit harder to know exactly who the people are going to be. So I really recommend doing um, a little bit of extra screening or using a service that does a little extra screening to make sure that the people are going to be able to connect. They're going to be able to be heard um, and hear you. And if you're going to have to share screen to do a tech check and all that kind of stuff. Um, so and, this, and
1: sorry to interrupt you. One experience sure. that I have with this and I think was is really a valid uh, point especially with remote unmoderated user testing. My experience is if you don't really specify the script well and in the script also the target audience and their experience, for example, have people who, I don't know, traveled with an airplane two times in the last year or did this and this, you can get really skewed audience, especially... This is what I call more professional testers that are there for yeah,
0: the- <laughs> yeah the the dreaded professional usability <laughs> test takers. So you have to be kind of on the lookout for that anyway, no matter what. But you're right, especially with um, unmoderated studies. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit too. So I've been talking mostly about moderated um, methods, which are basically any method where you, as a researcher, are are present. Uh, Whether you're physically next to each other or not, you're there, you know, sort of leading a discussion or leading people through. But there's lots of methods that you can do in an unmoderated way, meaning that you set up the questions ahead of time or you set up the context ahead of time, and then the um, participants can take them on their own time. So, you know, something as simple as a survey or you can do card sorts in an unmoderated way, or there's also lots of tools to do unmoderated usability tests. So you can preset the tasks, especially if you're evaluating like really specific things in an interface. Um, Again, there's sort of that trade-off of you don't get the chance to follow up with people. You don't get the chance to dig in, um, but you also don't get a chance to kind of feel out the people and understand who they are, where when you're moderating a session, you can tell pretty quickly if the person isn't exactly who they said they were or or if they seem like the kind of person who is just there to try to get the incentive rather than truly being your target audience. Most of the tools that I've used are pretty good about you know, like replacing a user if it seems like they haven't been totally honest or that kind of thing. But um, it's something to be aware of. And a lot of times I'll recommend my clients do a couple extra um, sessions if they're planning to do unmoderated so that you can have kind of that buffer for, well, I'm not really sure if there's going to be, you know, if I would need six responses, maybe I should have eight just in case two of them are not quite who we're looking for or... Did all the tasks but didn't actually remember to speak aloud when they were doing them or give us any of the kind of extra context and yeah. feedback that we usually look for but it's good for
1: quantity so like you said to identify these major ux fails this is where i think it works well right so where you can get i don't know 20 recordings i don't know 10 on mobile 10 on desktop and you see five of them struggle with the same same task or same part of the task that's where uh, unmoderated user testing is useful,
0: yeah unmoderated u- usability testing is especially good when you have uh, a live you know feature or site or app or whatever, and um people are already using it and familiar with it, and you're really trying to get kind of like a benchmark. Um, of an overall broad scale, and you have really defined tasks. So you know that you need, for instance, somebody to be able to book a flight on a specific day or whatever. Unmoderated research is not great if you're doing exploration, but it's pre- It's pretty. it can be pretty useful for evaluating really specific tasks.
1: One of the things that we talked a little bit about is, okay, we need to increase, maybe in current times, the frequency to be more agile, more fast. And even before the... Cr- the crisis, I see airlines and bigger companies, so they had different uh, let's say groups of people working I don't know marketing team working on campaign plans, UX and the product team, digital product team working on development sprints, and then we have conversion optimization teams doing on experiment uh, pipeline. How do you embed user research in that into this more agile and more faster environment?
0: Yeah, sure. So this is something that a lot of organizations have challenges with, and I've seen it work really, really well. And I've seen lots of variations <laughs> where it worked a little less well, but so what works
1: well? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. So what I what works well, <laughs> um, and what I recommend is that if it's at all possible to have a dedicated researcher as part of an Agile team. You know, everybody is cross-functional and everybody does a little bit of everything, but if you can have somebody who's kind of dedicated to research within a team, that is awesome. Um, If you can't have that having at least like a, a person or a team of researchers that are dedicated to research, even if they serve multiple teams or multiple products, to have some dedicated resources, Uh, Because a lot of times what I see is um, agile, like product development teams especially, there'll be one sort of UX generalist person on a team who is tasked with doing both design and research work, uh, which is better than no research work at all, but is problematic, one, because that's two people's worth of work, (laughs) and two, because um, it's really difficult, especially for evaluative research, um, to be unbiased when you're the one who created something. Um, it doesn't matter how carefully you craft the questions or how much training you have, if you're the one who designed something, it's incredibly difficult to be unbiased. So um I really recommend and if you if you really don't have resources for that, at least pair UX generalists up and have um people conduct research on other people's designs and vice versa. So that's the first thing kind of from like a, a team setup thing. I really recommend having dedicated um research or at least shared research resources. Um, The other thing I'll say is, so everything, especially in like a a capital A Agile team, (laughs) um, (laughs) has, you know, there's a lot of kind of ceremonies and scripts that go along with things. Like if you're doing, you know, two-week sprints, there's sprint planning and there's check-ins and then there's the end of the sprint. And there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's scheduled in. So I recommend doing that with research as well. Um, and having sort of a particular cadence. It doesn't have to be every single sprint, but as often as possible. Um, And also dedicating some stuff that's going to be evaluative in nature, and some stuff that's going to be more generative in nature. Um, and, And just go ahead and making it part of the schedule, just like everything else. You know, just like you have sprint planning on Tuesdays or whatever, you've got research sessions that happen on every third Thursday or whatever it is. Um, And again, you have to kind of figure out what works for your particular team, but having dedicated time to do both evaluative and, um, you know, that more sort of generative exploratory research is really important. Um, So dedicating the time to it. And when you dedicate that time ahead of time, you can be more proactive about, planning ahead so that you can recruit. You can be more proactive about testing out different tools um, and making sure that they work before the actual session starts. Um, And it gives you the opportunity if you really just come to one of those dedicated times and you're like, man, we really don't have any big open questions right now, then you can do some benchmarking or you can rerun some prior research that you've done to see if, for instance, um, anything in context has changed over the last three months or anything. You can run the exact same research effort again and compare your results so that you can learn about how things um, have changed over time. Um, And so that's really, really valuable feedback for all of the teams to have. And it really helps um, everybody kind of see the impact of what they're working on. Um, and so sometimes you'll see, you know, in, in three months, maybe the world has changed significantly. Maybe, you know, Outlook is really different. Maybe you launched something, um, you know, two months ago, and you can learn really how that's actually impacting people. You really can get a, a wide breadth of information. And it, it makes the planning much easier because um, you can recruit people ahead of time. You can set up the, the logistics ahead of time. Um, and it it really just helps to kind of get everybody to see like, just like we would never skip, you know, retrospective or sprint planning. We never skip research. It's part of our process. It's just what we do.
1: Make sure that research is key part or core part of the core agile process. And
0: And then the other part of it, which we talked about a little bit before, but that um, with agile teams and kind of different teams working on it is again, sort of, Using the, one of the really big values about Agile is the focus on collaboration um, and the focus on sort of cross-functional teams. And so I use that to my advantage when I work in Agile settings. And I really try to get, you know, when I know that research is the third Thursday of every month or whatever, I can say, hey, you know, marketing team, this particular month I'm researching this thing. I think it will be interesting for you please come and join. You can take notes or like whatever. Um, You can kind of do some ahead of time uh, pitching internally to get people to be involved (laughs) in the research um, and get them bought in. And you can also kind of proactively say, Hey, you know, we have this, the sessions coming up. We only have, you know, like one research goal we're really looking at. Is there anything you're curious about that you'd like us to, um, you know, to, to get some research on? Do you have any open questions? um, And kind of let yourself be used as a resource for other parts of the organization. Um, So I know at one of the, uh, I I consult now, it's been a long time since I've worked in-house, but at one of my first jobs, me and my UX team member kind of became the, the question people. If you had a question about anything that had to do with basically any of our customers, you could just come to us and we'd figure out a way to get the information. And even if it wasn't exactly part of our sprint, you know, we might be able to get to it the next sprint or something. So kind of making yourself available and making the case um, and focusing it on, let us help you. Let us help you explore something. Let us give you some more information so you can make better informed decisions. Um, Rather than it being a Oh, here's one more meeting that you have to come to, (laughs) Um, you know, kind of position yourself um, as a resource to help people. Everybody likes looking good and having their job be easier.
1: No, look, I would love to talk about uh, this for hours. I think especially you're so passionate and uh, really have a lot of experience in this area, but maybe the last question to wrap this up as we were telling initially that uh, you'll be part of our Digital Academy team, but you also teach about UX on LinkedIn, you do workshops. What is the, for you, in your experience over the years, what is the key element of learning about UX? How do you, what is the best way to learn about UX and UX research?
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good (laughs) question. So really the best way, at least for me, Uh, the best way to learn is to work with somebody who is already experienced and kind of get your hands dirty with them. Um, So there's, and I, I, you know, I love online learning. I love having classes, but I always really recommend like get some basic information yourself and then get some practice, right? So get some, find somebody who knows what they're doing already and, um, you know, hire them to work with you or, um, you know, kind of, Find a mentor to work with you and really practice. Because, um, especially with user research, a lot of the concepts are really easy, uh, but it, it can be harder to put into practice than you think. So, even like that simple question of how to choose which method, it's really much easier with some experience and with somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of. And so, although I've been in UX for a really long time and I teach other people to do it, I love having other people to bounce ideas off of and to try stuff out. And, you know, I, 12 years into my role, <laughs> um, but every almost every day, I try something brand new. Um, I test out a new tool. Uh, and so kind of just remaining curious and, and giving yourself some room to experiment. And um, if you can, really having somebody who's experienced it in a different way than you, uh, provide some guidance.
1: No, well, no, that's great advice. And we try to embed basically the two principles that you mentioned. One is work with a mentor, so somebody to help you, to give you advice, uh, and try things hands-on. So do the do do things on your own because you learn much more when you try things. We try to bend these both two principles in our academy, and I'm really excited to, to collaborate with you and to do some uh, user experience uh, exercises and uh, try things uh, with you and the group that will join us.
0: Yeah, I'm excited too, it's gonna be fun.
1: Yeah, so thanks, Amanda, and uh, looking forward to the first task that we'll do in the Academy.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, I'm excited to join and I I look forward to seeing uh, lots of the rest of you there as well. This podcast is supported by Pros. Pros is also the launch partner and a contributor to the Dig and Travel Digital Retailing Academy. With a legacy of over 30 years in the airline industry, Prose supports carriers on their journey to digital commerce. Through the Academy, we want to promote the recovery of the industry we love. The Academy is a carefully crafted learning experience in which industry professionals will engage you and support you through understanding the fundamentals of airline digital retailing, as well as deep dive with you into your selected topics. During this program, PROS experts will introduce you to the topic of digital product development and help you learn how to increase web and mobile conversion and improve the digital experience for travelers. Enroll in the academy to master your digital skills with pros and dig in travel.